This is Welcome Home Radio from the Fresno Association of Realtors on 940 KYNO. Well, good morning and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host on our Valley's most informative real estate talk show. This hour is being brought to you by the Fresno Association of Realtors. And the goal that we have is to provide our listeners some really good information that will help you make great real estate decisions, make you be a winner in the real estate game. Um, Keep in mind that you can also, if you can't get, if you're not driving, you don't hear this on your radio, you can also stream the show by visiting the website, kynofresno.com, or you can download the mobile app on your phone or ask Alexa to play KYNO Fresno. And if you miss a show, we upload each show to our website. As I say almost every week, we have the great opportunity to invite members and affiliates to our show from all facets of real estate. And today today is no different. Today we're bringing back somebody who, well, last time, the ratings took a hit, and that would be Harry Pascuzzi, real estate attorney extraordinaire. That last word was comes from him. Um, <laughs> but he's on the show, but fortunately, he brought his wife, Susan, along, and she's going to help fill the hour. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Don. I, I didn't realize you guys had ratings, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess that one shot deserves another, right? <laughs> um Real estate is really important in that, and how we take title to real estate is really important. And that's something that Susan um, specializes in, and that would be wills and trusts and probate. Um, so, yeah, what happens when we meet our maker and, and it, where does the property go? So that's something we're going to get involved in today. And then we're also going to talk a lot about real estate law. Um, heck, I might even ask Harry a question like, what's an easement? Um, it, Don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll bet you can answer it. <laughs> and later in the show, I got a surprise for Harry. Mm. Oh, good. Yeah. So <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> um, all right. I, here's a word that comes up quite a bit. Um, probate. Could you tell us what what in the world is probate? Of course, Don. Um, that's a, a good question, one that uh, many people have. If you've actually even heard the word probate, which some people haven't, uh, probate is the court <clears throat> supervision over the administration of an estate when someone passes away. So when there is a death and the uh, decedent owns property or assets over a certain value and primarily real estate uh, if they have a will or if they don't have a will uh, in order to distribute that asset or the assets it has to be approved by the court system which is uh, the filing of a petition for probate to have somebody appointed as the administrator if there's no will or an executor, if one is appointed under a will, that person then has the authority to sell property, uh, pay bills, uh, 
and then ultimately distribute the assets either as directed by the will or if there is no will by the laws in California that say who gets the assets. So the importance of having a will is that you could direct who you want to receive the assets as opposed to the laws in California telling the administrator how that's going to happen if you don't do a will. So that's where a will can be very important. All right. So that's keeping control of the estate as opposed to handing it over to the state of California. Now, the assets don't go to the estates of California. So that's what I hear a lot. People say, well, I want to do a will so that everything doesn't go to the state. And nothing would go to the state as long as you have some error, some living error. But the state does dictate how the assets are distributed to the heirs. So they manage it. Uh, not quite managing. So you're going to stick with the word dictate. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. So the laws in California say if um, you have, for instance, I run across this a lot. Let's say you have a child who's estranged or you have a child who passed away and they have children. Um, that estranged child could very well be an heir that would get part of your estate, and maybe that's not what you would want to happen. Um, if you have a child that passed away and they have children, uh, they those children of the children would get a portion of the estate, and maybe that's not what you would want to happen. Um, and it happens in shares, so it's, it's, a, it's a rule of distribution based on the laws of California. And sometimes that, is what, that would be the standard of how people may want their estate distributed, but not always. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, just to give a little example of that is, what is that first level of distribution when you have to follow the rules of what are called intestate succession? Yes, so intestate, and it does depend on whether it's community property or separate property. So community property would go to a spouse if it was true community property. But uh, if you have no spouse, then it's to the children in equal shares, to your, your issue. An issue would be either biological or adopted children. Uh, if you have a deceased child, then that share goes to their issue. And just to throw in a little complication here, if you have no children, uh, but you had a spouse that died before within 15 years of you and you own real estate, then the spouse's issue is going to get half of the estate. Which, and in those situations, it can really get complicated. Boy, I can see that. Let me back. Oh. So what Susan is saying is, Either you follow your rules of where you want to distribute it, or you follow the state's rules of where ah, to be distributed. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. Right. So how would the state look at it? And this might motivate our listeners to say, hey, I'm going to get busy and uh, get a will or a trust going. But let's say there were three kids. The spouse has already passed away. Um, so now it's in one person's name. But there's three children. You're saying if the state decides, it's going to be probably split evenly with the three. Yes. If there's no will. Now, what if one of those three children passed away, but they have children? Does Do, do the children get one-third and then the aunt and uncle get one-third? Yes. So the share of the deceased child would go down to his or her children. 
Okay. So, yeah, that should, uh, and I see what Harry's saying, too, that, uh, yeah, you're letting the state decide how it's going to be rather than how you want it to be. Right. So when somebody says, well, hey, I have, uh, I have a will, um, when is that not good enough? Does it, can that avoid probate if you're in a will? No. And a lot of people think that if you have a will, it doesn't have to go through probate. And that is not accurate. So the only way to avoid probate is to hold title to your assets in a trust. And if I may kind of interject, then the question most people ask next is, well, why do I want to avoid probate? And the uh, answer to that is essentially the cost and the time involved in probate. So when I first started doing this back in uh, the late 90s, probate wasn't that expensive. But the cost of doing a trust was because it was mostly for people with substantial assets and a way to do uh, inheritance tax planning. Mm -hmm. And the cost of probate wasn't that much. And so people weren't that concerned about avoiding probate. As time has gone on, the costs of probate have increased substantially, and uh, the attorney's fees that are paid in a probate are a percent of the gross value of an estate. So now that real estate has gone, uh, you know, the values of properties are so high that the costs of probate are very substantial and can take a big hit out of the uh, estate. So uh, the other reason to avoid probate is the time it takes to actually distribute assets. About how much time would that uh, a typical probate take? About a year for mm-hmm. an easy probate. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons is because the courts are so backed up right now in, in giving hearing dates. So right now, if I was to file a petition to close out an estate, I wouldn't get an hear- a hearing date for four months. So you've got the initial hearing to appoint somebody as the administrator or the executor. There's a four-month waiting period, and then you can move to close the estate. But then you've got four months after that before you're actually going to get in front of a judge. All right. So it sounded complicated right there. This time, and the heirs don't get anything from the estate until the judge says or issues that order that says the assets can be distributed. All right. So if the heirs know that, hey, there's a $100,000 life insurance policy out there, um, they don't get anything until the judge says it. Is that right? Yes, except some assets, mostly life insurance, will have a beneficiary. Ah. So most people will have, if they have life insurance or a retirement plan, hopefully they have named beneficiaries on those assets so that they can pass directly outside of the will or the trust and outside of probate. So I picked the wrong asset. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's say a savings account. Right. Okay. Then they got to wait. Right. But, that, but that's a good tip right there. So if you do have life insurance... Um, you can put it in the name or name your beneficiaries because then it goes straight. If I'm correct, it goes straight to the beneficiary from the insurance company. Doesn't have to go through probate or or anything. Right. And you can actually name a beneficiary on a savings account or any type of bank account, which is it's either referred to as a TOD designation or POD, which stands for transfer on death or pay on death. 
So that's the same as a beneficiary designation on an asset like life insurance. But the one asset you don't want to just uh, name a beneficiary on, even though it's still feasible in California, is real estate. Because although we have a transfer on death deed, I don't advise doing TOD deeds. If you've run across that before in your experience, Mm -hmm. it can be very, uh, for title insurance purposes, it's not a good idea. A simple trust is much better to pass real estate uh, cleanly and effectively in California. All right. After we get back from our first commercial break, I want to get into the benefits of a trust versus a will. So stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 KYNO. Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and here in the studio this morning, we have Susan Pascuzzi and Harry Pascuzzi, both uh, attorneys. One specializes, Susan specializes in trust, wills, and probate. Harry specializes in real estate. Harry, that must be pretty boring, huh? Real estate law? That's that's what a lot of people say. God, you're in real estate. Isn't that boring, just paperwork and this and that? I think... I think this is the best profession to be in because I'm handling people's most expensive investment of their lives, usually. And when they're selling their real estate, they're, they're probably cashing the biggest check they'll ever cash. And, you know, I consider real estate to be people's most important investments. And frankly, most millionaires are made out of real estate, not what they do from eight to five. So, no, I, and, and real estate is so fascinating. I mean, I started, you know, a long time ago in title and escrow and working up to watching how things are done it, it's it's fascinating to, to all the aspects and ins and outs of real estate speaking of you started um it should be known to our listeners harry and i started out in real estate together uh as far as you worked for me i worked for you uh, in different ways and i will say i learned a lot from harry you never thought I would say I that. Stunned. <laughs> you should be. Uh, but anyway, it, uh, and it was great to, and I'm going to give you this compliment. It was great to learn from somebody that had a legal background because the one of the biggest things I learned from you is what if. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you do that, if or if you, you know, you uh, do that type of financing, what if? What are all the what ifs that could happen? So think that through before you go forward with it. And that's a good point for the viewers is when I create a contract, we put all the deal points in there. But a good contract uh, indicates what happens, what if. And sometimes people don't want to talk about what if because it's never going to happen. And it's, oh, two people buy property together, but they're not married. And, you know, it's, it's a bliss right now. You should prepare a co-ownership agreement. Why? Well, in case you two break up, now we know what happens to the property, who gets what, who put up the down payment. You guys decide right now, while it's bliss, because when you break up, it's not bliss. So a thing like that, you want to ask all the hard questions. You get all the what-ifs answered in the document, so it's a roadmap for the future, no matter what happens. That's Mm -hmm. a good document. All right. So... What if? That's that's the great question. How, however, now let's go back to wills and trusts 
And why should somebody, we, I think in the first segment, we talked about why someone should have a will because then you get to decide where the money goes as opposed to having the state decide where it goes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about a trust and how, and what are the benefits between a will and a trust? And if I may, the initial question is usually, what is a trust? Okay. So, and the way I like to explain it is a trust is basically an agreement that you make with yourself to hold title to your assets as a trustee of a trust that you create for your own benefit. So while you're living, you are the person that created the trust, you're the beneficiary of the trust, and you are the trustee who is the manager of the trust. And this is referred to as a revocable living trust or sometimes a family trust. Uh, Why would you wanna do this? The reason to do this is in the event of incapacity or on death, you have appointed in this agreement somebody to be your successor trustee. They will step into your shoes if you're not able to be the manager and now they can manage the assets just as you could if you were here to do so. So when it comes to real estate, if, you're become, if you become incapacitated or on your death, you've got somebody appointed to step into your shoes who can sell the property, uh, manage the property, if that's the intended um, outcome of your document. Uh, and this can all happen mm-hmm very efficiently and without a lot of delay. So as soon as a death certificate is available, your successor trustee can sell, uh, can step in and sell the property if that's what needs to happen. And if uh, you know, hopefully nobody's feuding over the, the assets or the estate and then everything can be distributed relatively quickly as long as um, the, the trustee is uh, satisfied that all the bills have been paid. So a trust is just a different way of holding title to your assets. So it's a way to vest title to avoid probate. All right. Um, Does a trust also avoid a property tax reassessment? Yes. Oh, so there's another advantage. Yes, a trust is not, a revocable living trust is not considered a transfer of ownership. So by putting your real estate into a trust, there's no property tax reassessment. Okay. So let's say a person puts their property into a revocable living trust, and then they pass away, and the beneficiary, the successor trustee sends it off to or gives it to the beneficiaries. Um, there's not a reassessment. Oh. Well, that's a different scenario. Oh, so okay. there's no reassessment on the initial transfer when you put it into the trust while you're living. When you die and then it gets transferred to your beneficiaries or your heirs, there's no the trust does not help in that way. So you still are subject to the same uh, rules as far as parent-child exclusions on uh, transfer of assets. Okay. How about for capital gains? For capital gains, again, no distinction between uh, how a property is transferred either by will or trust. But on death, there's a step up in the tax basis. 
So when a person passes away, the property is revalued uh, based on date of death value. So if the property is sold relatively soon, um, there would be no capital gains taxes to the heirs. All right. Uh, thank you for that explanation. Let me give you a scenario. Let's say you got a young couple. They're in their 20s. Um, they buy their first home, and it's an average home. So let's say around between 350 to 450 somewhere in, in that price range. And that's really their only major asset they have other than a couple of cars with car loans on them. Um, is that advisable to put that in a trust? Well, it depends. Uh, there's a way to hold title to real property to where you can give your spouse an automatic right of survivorship. So on the death of the first spouse, the surviving spouse becomes uh, the 100% owner of the property without having to go through probate or without having to have a will. Um, but where the it depends comes from is it depends on the nature of the family situation. For instance, if you had a young couple, but maybe they're a blended family, so your children aren't mutual children, then by passing the property to your spouse, you may have eliminated any distribution to your own children because then it, your spouse becomes 100% owner of the property. If the spouse dies, then everything goes to the children of the surviving spouse. Mm. So in a situation of a blended family, no matter if you're old, young, or what you have, it could be very important to do a trust just to make sure you're your children are all protected. Okay, so that goes back to the what if. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and let me punch out the step up in basis because that's big sometimes. Okay. Let's say uh, dad is a surviving spouse and he owns an office building. He bought it when it was a hundred grand. It's now worth a million dollars. It's gone up 900,000. And when you talk about basis, the basis is what he bought it for and if he sold it for a million, he'd be taxed on a $900,000 gain. So dad's sitting there thinking, my kids don't know how to operate an office building. I'm gonna make it easy for them. I'll sell it and give them cash. Well, when he sells it, he's gonna pay taxes on $900,000. So the 600 or whatever he's left with, he can distribute 600. But if he waited a day until he died and the kids sold the day after he died, they would get the 900 without the income tax because the basis jumps from 100 to the date of death value of a million, they they would get the whole 900, not what's left over after taxes. Does that step up in uh, basis occur for any um, type of vesting? What, whether no. It, no? No. Just in the trust? The trust it does. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, you, you can answer better <laughs> than I can. I don't, I don't want to correct no. you. It depends. And remember, it they're married. <laughs> no, it depends on what Susan says it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, you've gotten smart here. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I never, first of all, caveat, we're not tax professionals. We don't give tax advice. But any real estate would get a step up in the tax basis. It wouldn't have to be in a trust to get the step up. Well, he's saying depending on how it's vested. So if you have a 
joint tenancy, community property, community property with right of survivorship, or a trust, that could affect this, the basis. But in a trust, you do definitely get the step up in basis. The other forms of ownership, maybe, maybe not. Okay. All right. And so that's why it's really important to go to the right <laughs> professional. And what Susan's saying is you can see a, a tax attorney or the CPA on something like that. So. Yeah. And just as a way of example, if two people own property as joint tenants, uh, so you have a spouse, they have a whole property as joint tenants. One spouse passes away, uh, there's only a 50% a, a step up in the tax basis on a joint tenancy. If that property was held as community property with right of survivorship, there would be a 100% step up on the tax basis. So when I'm putting property in a trust and if I find that it's a joint tenancy property, I will first, if it is true community property, to do a community property vesting first and then put it into the trust. And I know that's getting a little bit technical right now, but so okay. there, there is a distinction with the way of uh, how the property is vested. But the process is real simple. You go in, you see Susan or Jared <laughs> or one of the other attorneys in office, and I'll say, what do you got? Where's it going? And they'll figure out all the rest after that. All right. So... We don't have to know all this <laughs> right. ourselves. Right, it's a lot to absorb in an hour. <laughs> all right, so we are going to go to our next commercial break, but when we get back, I've got more questions on taking title and such. So stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today Because the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host. And here in the studio this morning, we have Harry Pascuzzi and Susan Pascuzzi of Pascuzzi, Pascuzzi. And Stoker. And Stoker Law Firm, um, specializing in real estate and estate planning. Is, is that the right way to say it? Yes. And civil litigation ah. is the Stoker part of it. <laughs> okay. So um, let me get into some basic real estate because we've been talking about wills and trusts, and we're going to get back to that too. I want to take go, go into some basic real estate like, Harry, what is an easement? Seriously, Don, you don't know what an easement is? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I don't. Sorry. Let's just say that I don't. How's Let's that? pretend you don't. An easement is giving someone else the right to use your property. Predominantly, the easements are for access, or it could be for parking, or it could be for whatever use somebody wants to use your property for. But primarily, I'd say over 90% of all easements are for the right to pass across someone's property to get to their property. Ingress, okay. egress, and access. So when somebody sees... They, they study, they're buying a home, they see the preliminary title report, and there's an easement to Pacific Gas and Electric. Um, should they be alarmed? That, that's a good point, because I see a lot of people buy real estate, and, and, and there's a title report always issued by the title company. By the way, don't ever buy property without going through escrow and title. 
you want to see what the condition of the property is, not just visually, but you want to see what it is on paper, which is what you're going to get with the title report. And they will give you a list of exceptions to title, and they will normally give you hyperlinks so you can open up each of the documents and review the documents. Uh, you really need to understand what it is that you're buying. I had a family two years ago, bought a beautiful lot, man. They're going to put their pool in the backyard. And what they didn't do is read the easements. And there was an easement for PG&E, went right through the backyard. And it, would, it was a cable, you know, eight feet under the ground. But they weren't building a pool in their backyard. They thought they were going to. So, yes, absolutely, understand the documents. So what happened there is they were not able to use the property for their intended use because yeah. they, they didn't read their their stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of easements that are uh, relatively benign. They run along the back 10 feet of your property, normally the utility easements and such. Um, but the oddball one, you know, could cut through your property. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and, and, of course, there's a lot of you called it benign easements where uh, maybe the side, well, the sidewalk is an easement uh, typically. And I don't think anybody's going to have a problem with that. They see the sidewalk, so they figure it's there. And actually, you probably own your sidewalk because on the most of the recorded maps, it's like a, a 40 or 60 foot dedicated to the city property, which is the roadway, but they only build it to 40 feet. So, you know, you you actually own the sidewalk and you own up to the curb. I, I take that back, just the opposite. The, the city owns your sidewalk and they own your little park strip between the sidewalk and the street, wherever that 60 feet goes to, but they give you the opportunity to maintain it for them. <laughs> a good way to put it. But you also can't tell somebody, hey, get off my sidewalk. It's not yours. <laughs> yeah. All right. Because it's an easement. No. It's it's owned by the city. Okay. And if it's city property, you don't need an easement to cross because it's for the you and me and the public. All right. So what are the different things that restrict someone's use? You know, easements. How about zoning, CCNRs, HOAs? Yeah, I always say people are subject to two sets of rules when they want to use and occupy their property. One is the zoning laws. What can you do pursuant to whatever zoning you're in? I think all property is zoned something. If you're in the city, you look at the city zoning laws. If you're not in a city and you're in the county, you look at the county zoning laws, and it'll tell you what you can build, how far from the property line you can build, and pages and pages of things you can and cannot do. But that's not the end of the story. Most all subdivisions, at least all those created in the last 50 years, have what are called con covenants, conditions, and restrictions. We call them CCNRs. And that's a set of rules for your subdivision that the subdivider put in place in order to make the subdivision more attractive to people because nobody's going to put up a five-story house. Nobody's going to, if you have an architectural control, do a pink house or a, you know, uh, basketball courts in the front yard or, or whatever. But there's a whole set of rules you're going to live by called your CC&Rs. Now, only people in your subdivision can enforce your CC&Rs against you. So if there's another subdivision across the street 
total different subdivision. They can't enforce your subdivision CCNRs as you can't enforce their CCNRs. Only people in the subdivision can enforce CCNRs. Who do you call to enforce it? The city? Well, code enforcement? Normally, CCNRs say any person who owns a lot in the subdivision can't enforce the CCNRs. So they can actually bring a lawsuit and, and enforce the CCNRs. A lot of times, people have homeowners associations and they normally take the lead in, in you know, taking mm -hmm. care of the enforcement of the CCNRs. You know, it's funny you bring that story up about you can't paint, paint it pink. The house that uh, my wife and I have, uh, I noticed in reading the preliminary title report, the art on the architectural committee was a guy that we know, Joe Jones. Mm -hmm. So it's like I called Joe Jones up and I said, "Now, Joe, yeah, how are you on here, and why? What are you going to do?" He goes, "Don't worry, none." He goes, "I'm not going to tell you what to do or not do. Just don't paint it Dodger blue." <laughs> <laughs> Which should be in most CCNRs. Oh. <laughs> um, not, not south of Fresno, because that's L.A. Dodger territory. Yeah. Right. All right. So um, you, you say it's to make a, a, a subdivision more attractive for the CCNRs. So what are the typical things that they restrict and allow? Um, square footage, maybe? Yeah, normally minimum square footage, minimum, uh, maximum height, um, proximity to the property line, like you can't build within 10 feet of the property line. And people say, well, my zoning says I can build 5 feet, but the CCNR say 10 feet. Which one uh, do I have to go by? Uh, you go by the most stringent of the two, mm -hmm. 10 feet. I don't care if the, the county says you can do 5 feet, the CCNR say 10 and from a real estate perspective, I'd like to throw this in there. That is nice to have those because when you go to sell your home, if that if your neighborhood is very attractive because homes aren't bunched together, there there's uh, you know um, a fair amount of space in between them. It it adds value. It does. I mean, old old subdivisions that don't have CCNRs. If your neighbor was successful and goes to the city and say, I want to rezone and make a store out of this or a, a parking lot or whatever, you have nothing to say about that because there's, there's no set of rules. They'd have to rezone, so now they're in a different zoning and they can do whatever, but, um, yeah, you have no power. Or they might decide uh, that your neighbor decides to put a ham radio tower in the backyard. Yeah. That's true. And that you're right. Those are things, you know, no chickens, no livestock, no radio towers, no, you know, there's a, there's, I mean, it depends on the CCNR. So we're kind of generalizing, but yeah, it's a good read. Whenever you buy a house, read the CCNRs and see what the rules are. All right. Um, how about an HOA? Does that, is that another restriction to CCNRs or to zoning? Well, it, now we're getting into the types of property ownership as well. So, I mean, you're, you're the, the type of ownership that gives you the least amount of control is your condominium because you only own from the inside walls in. You don't know, even own your outside walls. You don't own your roof. And you normally don't own any dirt around your property. The next one is um, a planned unit development. 
where you probably own your lot, but there's a lot of common area, common pools, common whatever, rec facilities. And so there is a lot of common area. And there's, in both of the HO, in both of the condominiums and the plan unit developments, there are associations that manage things. It's a management, internal management group to enforce the CCNRs and the rules of the subdivision. But as you expand out, the next level of ownership is normally just a regular old subdivision. You know, there are no common areas, and there might be minor entrance common areas or things like that. But sometimes there's associations set up, sometimes there's not, because they're not really collecting dues. They're just enforcing rules. So the only use purpose of those kind of associations is normally just architectural control. And when I say architectural, I'm talking about colors and additions and all kinds of things. Is that called a um, PUD de minimis? No. PUD, plan unit de minimis? Plan, yeah. The, the HOAs that, um, that don't collect dues, they just put out an architectural design okay sure Don. Th this is the same look <laughs> i used to get when i worked for harry many years ago and um you notice we haven't worked together in a while <laughs> all right i was trying to show off that i could speak latin de minimis but you gotta know what it means <laughs> all right with that we're going to our next commercial break but stay tuned to welcome home radio 940 kyno well welcome back to welcome home radio this is don scordino your host and we have a couple of celebrities here in the studio uh who uh they have a law firm that has just made the top five. Is that right? In uh, according to the Business Journal. That's correct, Don. Yeah. All right. Well, congratulations on that. Um, see, real estate is a big thing. <laughs> um, okay. Been around a long time. Now, uh, I mentioned earlier that I was going to surprise Harry with something. Uh, Harry and I back in the eighties. Uh, he hired me to be a manager for Farina Real Estate that he was a 50% owner of, along with Joe Farina, the builder. And um, I just handed him a uh, something that, because he, he wanted me to do a training piece on leases, lease options, option to purchase, and all that, which is a potentially litigious situation if you don't do it correctly. Um Anyway, I just surprised Harry, and I gave him that training tape. The only problem is, go ahead, Harry, tell us what the problem is. Well, actually, Don forgets, but he actually did a whole, we put together a whole series of training tapes before training was really training. and Maybe that's we, how I got my experience here for the radio. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Um, so we did the whole book on training, but we got tired of training every time we hired a new agent, so we put it on tape. There's actually about 20 of these tapes on all different segments, and Don gave this to me so I can watch it tonight, but it's on a VHS, and I have no idea how you operate one of these anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that's why I gave it to you, because I can't use it anymore. No. All right. Um, tell us about both of you tell us about some of the problem transfers that you've seen that have come across your desk where somebody thinks 
they, they went on the internet and found, oh, here's how I can do my estate planning or here's how I can transfer property. What yeah. are some of the issues that come up? The one that cracks me up is when people come in and say, you know what? I won't put the property I own in my son Joe's name and I told him what to do after we die because I have six kids and he's the most trustworthy of the bunch. And now uh, I don't trust Joe anymore, so I want to get it out of his name. How do I do that? Well, you got to get Joe to sign a deed back to you. Well, Joe and I aren't talking. So it's, it's the people that try to, prior to death, distribute their property by deed and create a whole bunch of problems for themselves. And not only when uh, are you potentially creating problems, but when you transfer the property to your kids while you're living, you're making a gift of that asset. Uh, and then the kids won't get that step up in the basis to eliminate the capital gains taxes because a gift goes with the same basis that the donor has. So they lose the step up in the tax basis that they would have gotten had they inherited the property. So that, that can be problematic on, on a couple of different levels. And people have to be very careful when they transfer property uh, because they may not get control of it back. Exactly. And then another issue is, as I see a lot, is uh, you may have two people that are holding title as joint tenants. And the intent is that it transfer to the, the survivor of the two of them when one of them dies, which is a good way of holding title if that's the true intent. Now, all of a sudden, they want to add a, a child or a third person to the title. They create their own transfer deed, and they, tra they add the third person to the title, but they forget to write as joint tenants on the deed. So they've effectively severed the joint tenancy and cre now have created potential probate estates. So a lot of times people will call me and say, hey, how do I get a blank deed so, so that I, I can, I want to do my estate planning and I want to put this, and, and I got it covered. I went on the internet. I, I know what I'm doing. Of course, I tell them I don't have a blank deed. In fact, I don't know where you'd get one uh, other than internet. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. I should have yeah. known that. But the, the right way to do it is you go to an attorney. Right. You know, one of the other things that we've uh, come across in recent years is um, problems with title insurance. When uh, family members do their own deeds and it hasn't been done by an attorney or a title company, then when it comes to sell that property down the mm. road, the title companies don't want to insure it without, a, what do they call it, a, a affidavit. Um, oh, they, they want an affidavit from the transferor that basically says, yes, I knew what I was doing when I did this deed because it's an uninsured transfer deed. So they want an uninsured deed affidavit. Okay, yeah, I have heard of that now that you say it like that. Right. But at that point, why not just do a deed? Right, because you're doing the same thing and it has to be notarized and it's gonna cost you money to do that. Here's one that I hear a lot. My parents are older, they're, uh, one is in a memory care home, the other, you know, uh, 
they gave me the power of attorney. So that's and that's a legal document as far as I know, but it may not be insurable. Exactly. And you have a, a couple of, of issues or problems with just using a power of attorney. One is the title company has to approve that power of attorney. And sometimes they won't unless it specifically describes that property by its legal description. The other issue is when a person passes away, the power of attorney is no good. Ah. So you can't use a power of attorney after somebody dies. Um, uh, there was a third reason, but it's, it's, it's escaping me now. That's okay. Um, we only have a few minutes left in the show, so this has really gone by fast. And one thing I'm learning is see an attorney if you want to do estate planning. Right. Uh, don't see the Internet. Um, but I'd like to ask each of you, uh, first, Harry, give in one minute or less, tell us what do you want our listeners to remember most about what you talked about in the show? You know, if as you we're could go- summarize. As we're going through all these horror stories, I think back what I said in the beginning, which is real estate is normally your biggest investment. And um, it, it's important to care for it uh, legally and documents and everything like that and how you transfer it and how you – you work out agreements to what you're going to do if you buy it with a buddy or you transfer it to you and your, your girlfriend, however you do it, work out all the documents to avoid all the pitfalls and problems. And the second thing is, as much as we love and respect our Dodger fans, Fresno is giant country. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, hopefully you cut the mic off there. Uh, let's go to Susan. What do you want our, our listeners to remember most? And especially when it comes to real estate, estate planning is so important uh, to make sure that, you know, what you want to happen to property when you die is what happens, Um, whether that be just to pass to spouse. uh, Again, we're blended families. You need to make sure you have your own kids protected and a trust can do that. Um, and it's, it's answering uh, to see somebody that knows what they're doing and, and ask all the what if questions. You know, what if I die first? What do I want to happen? What if my spouse dies first? What's going to happen? What if a child predeceased you? What do you want to happen to that share? What if your kids are minors? Who do you want to ha- manage their money? Because uh, a trust for a young family can also cover uh, children's trusts avoid the uh, necessity of a court-appointed conservator in in capacity or a minor's estate. Um, There's so many, the court processes these days are just so expensive and and so involved and emotionally draining. My goal when I deal with people is to make sure we're, if possible, we can avoid all those court processes. Okay. That that's good good information to know and i just i want people to remember that this is a complicated thing how you take title so take it serious don't just go into it well my brother-in-law said do this or do that so um get get it from the right source and if i may real quick i thought the third thing on that power of attorney when you have a a, an adult that is maybe receiving medi-cal um if you, an estate has to go through probate, there can be medical recovery. 
and the laws changed in 2017 where a trust can avoid Medi-Cal recovery. So if you're dealing with an, uh, an elderly person on a power of attorney, you may still have a probate issue and you may have to repay the state of California. A trust can avoid that. Wow, that's big. I'm, I'm glad you, you, you brought that one up. Now, for the last couple minutes of the show, I want to go back to, we're going to do this new segment for the next month. And this <laughs> goes back to last week when we had children on the show <laughs> teaching us what, what a home truly means. So each week um, for the next month, I'm going to give a few of their, their quotes. Here's one from Matthew, an 11th grader. Home is not just a place. It's our sanctuary. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Here's one from Kara, a fourth grader. Our home is where the family gathers for the holidays. It's fun chasing frogs around the yard with our cousins. <laughs> All right. Uh, here's another one from Ryan, who's a ninth grader. Home is where I do my homework. What I pick up from that is that's the stability that that home gives. To, mm -hmm. He knows it's time for homework. Um, here's our last one for today and that is from Tina a seventh grader our home is where my family and friends hang out and enjoy ourselves so the, the thing to remember is maybe your brother-in-law tells you oh now's not the time to buy you know get the calculator out it, it's it pays to be a renter or whatever not one kid mentioned price interest rates or anything. They gave us the true meaning of what a home really means. So with that, I want to thank Harry and Susan Pascuzzi for coming in and helping us today and thank our listeners for tuning in. We'll be back again next week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Don. Thanks, Don. <laughs>